Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Now for Jeffrey. He is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and foreign correspondent for the LA Times, currently serving as the paper's Cairo bureau chief. He has covered wars in Kosovo, Iraq, Libya, and Afghanistan. His first book, Promised Virgins, a novel of jihad, was published in 2009. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Fleischman. Thank you. Thanks for coming, everybody. Can you, uh, last time I had a problem with the microphone, is this okay? Okay, good. Um, well, Shadow Man, which uh, came about, uh, I think the seed of it was planted in my subconscious decades ago when um, we used to go to Albany in New York and visit my grand one of my grandmothers. And uh, she was this wonderful woman who was this wonderfully musical voice who would put me in her Corvair and take me shopping to the butcher's market and I was about this big and she was always just in a, a vibrant, terrific mood and um, very loving, very nurturing. And then over time, as, as I got older and obviously as she got older, she developed um, Alzheimer's and, and, uh, and forms of dementia. And I just saw this wonderfully vivacious woman just kind of crumble and curl away from all that she was and it happened very gradually and and it was very it was very difficult for for the whole family and so part of that always stayed with me about about memory and and how it is sort of this inner mosaic of who we are and the way it defines us and the way it points out it redeems us and points out the best things of of who we are it reminds us of, of reminds us of what we don't want to become <laughs> and uh, and so I, I toyed around with that and uh, I wanted to, to address it in some way in a novel uh, so Shadow Man is my attempt to do that and uh, it's told through through three voices and I'll read 
each one of the voices, uh, a passage of each one of the voices. But it's ba it's basically about a man who's a foreign correspondent. Um, I drew a little bit on, uh, on on what I knew, and he's losing himself. He's he's losing his memory, except for one vi vibrant, enchanting memory that he had when he was 15 years old after his mother died, and he went on an adventure with his father, with this crazy, lovely woman named Vera, and down the east coast of America, and how that journey changed their lives. So, um, the first passage is, is uh, I'll, I'll read the first one. And this is, this is he's, he's looking back as a boy, remembering his father coming home, and, and the bond that they have, and who comes into their lives. I remember him coming home from shipyards and factories, boots clicking and thumping down the sidewalk, and him whistling and smoking a rolled cigarette, metal flakes in his hair, hands stained and chipped as if he were wandering in from a war. Then into the kitchen for a gulp of beer. If it was summer, he'd step onto the back stoop and stare over rooftops of antennas to the gathering moon. The sky soothed him. Twilight was his time. Not that he ever told me to stay away. It's just that sometimes you know when not to crowd a man. I watched him through the screen, setting my breast to his and staying invisible, like a spy or a saint or a moth in the shadows. I can't even recall yesterday. And here I am tracing the edges of decades ago. I think it's been that long in a Philly neighborhood of men standing on stoops and drinking Jenny. They were statues, all of them, different shapes and sizes, yes, but statues all the same, with raised cocked arms and tilted back heads. Sips and slurps played into the night, and crumpled cans clattered off the grims of garbage bins as women hurried suppers onto tables, and boys like me crossed ourselves, bowed for grace, and counted our sins. What keeps drifting through me, though, like a breeze off a sea, is that summer after Mom died, the same year Richard Nixon scowled, sweaty and sinister, and I started noticing newspaper headlines and halter tops. For some reason, girls in halter tops stand out, bare shoulders and tan backs moving in wondrous rhythms. It was a year my dad told me to call him Kurt. He was painting Navy ships back then. His days were creosote and endless cans of flat gray. And he'd, he'd breathe in the salt and egg diesel in the water tang of the Delaware before she slipped her shoals and opened to the big Atlantic. He'd get transfixed by oil slicks of purple and gold and aluminum shimming past him in water like abstract paintings, pondering their molecular structures, deciphering maps, deciphering maps and designs and thread-like lines of their intricate shapes. He'd come home exhausted. Our house smelled of Bengay and rubbing ointments and was scattered with bandages that seemed like shards and pieces of ghosts. Blackened jeans hung on doorknobs and white t-shirts turned amber with sweat and streaked with gray and muddied red were draped over the banister as if a man could shed himself, peeling to nakedness and standing in the shower, steam seeping through the second floor like fog. The summer I called my dad Kurt was also known to Kurt as me as a summer of Vera. She burst into our neighborhood dinerhood on a Friday night, one of those people you hear coming before you see them, not like the cowboys in the movies who ride in from far off from the distance without making a sound. Vera jangled. 
She plucked a menu from the slot near the silver cash register and pulled it to her eyes and ran her fingers across each line as if she were reading Dostoevsky or a, lawn ma or a lawnmower manual, something you had to pay real close attention to. Everyone looked up, got a glance, and then stared down at the Formica tabletops, counting those little gold flecks, hoping, praying this crazy woman would pass them the way a storm skims in real close and then mysteriously whirls away from the shore. She spotted Kurt and me sitting by the window, minding our own business, trying to scrunch small, but you can only get too small in a window seat, especially at night when the lights outside put you up on kind of a stage. She headed right for us. Kurt said under his breath, shit. And so this is the beginning of, of the, the journey with her. The other part of the, that came out in, as I got to the later James, the one who's in his mid-50s, and is that my, I've been honored to witness some terrific events in the world, as have my colleague, Carol Williams. Um, and we both, I'm sure Carol feels the same way I do, but you, you feel this sense that you were in a moment of, of history and you got to touch things and see things in ways that, that most people don't get to see. And I, I couldn't imagine not knowing what it would be like to hike across the Himalayas with Tibetan monks who were escaping Chinese soldiers or talking to a body washer in Iraq who was washing the, the body of a cousin who came in unexpectedly. And, uh, and he looked down at the body and he said, what harm could an, a, a fruit seller do to anyone? And then in the moonlight one night in northern Iraq, watching the, uh, the rebel, the militants uh, take one of their fallen and in the moonlight and in the rain and outside a mosque, prepare them for burial. And it's just these moments of quiet, tragedy, beauty, every, every spectrum in the emotion, every emotion in the spectrum. And so in, in putting together the second part of this, I, I, I thought about what if, what if that was scoured of me, from me? What if I, what if I lost these things that, that make me who I am and, uh, and, and, and make my identity? And I wanted to make it that in, in James is losing the internal part of himself, but and that's the world. And the other metaphor part is is the world he's losing outside, and uh, and people try to bring that back. Uh, and so this is a part where James's doctor comes into the room. A man, a man, a doctor slips into the room and asks me questions, writes things on a clipboard. He says I have a far back but not close memory, my childhood vivid, my adulthood dormant, colorless. What I see, witness, experience one day disappears the next, like that shiny plastic paper I wrote on as a kid. When you lifted the paper off the inky board, whatever you had drawn was gone. There are apparently endless analogies for what's, wrong, what's happening to my shriveling mind. A small part of my brain resembles a glacier with deep recesses sunlight cannot penetrate. He says, it's like when ice climbers descend into a fissure and the light dims as they dangle on ropes in the darkness. The doctor says there will be fewer fissures of light and eventually all will be black except for an occasional flash of unexplained lightning that may revive a memory for a few seconds or maybe an hour, but it doesn't really matter because it won't last and the memory won't be remembered anyway. Confetti in the wind, a shattered mosaic, these are the examples he uses. He brims with metaphor. 
The doctor is heavyset with a broad face and curly brown hair that glows in the window light. He speaks quietly, but in a, de in a determined, uninterrupted flow, like a book on tape or a man telling you interesting facts between stops at a subway. He is intrigued by me, or more precisely, my case. I am younger than the ashen-faced droolers lingering in hallways of piss and peppermint and that antiseptic scent that makes these floors so sticky. That's what excites him. My, my youth. I am, he says, very young for such depletion. Usually a mind in my state is 70 or 75 years old. Usually, I'm sorry, usually a mind in my state is 70 or 75 years old, but I have somehow depleted earlier, and this concerns the doctor, who says it's happening more and more as baby boomers age, a whole generation of, a whole generation of dangling in the dark. He says he suspects environmental causes mixed with the stresses of modern life that somehow in his technology has done something to my mind. This is what he suspects. He speaks of synapse, brain circuitry, and promising drugs that have done wonders with rats. I have a headache. I want to ask him a question, but I don't. I just sit in my powder smell, staring at the flowers until he leaves. What is there to say about lost ice climbers anyway? My head hurts. I shake my head and, sh and I go to the table. It's messy with Philadelphia inquirers, books, pens, and notebooks scrawled with pictures, words, and strange stray symbols. On page one, James is written 1,000 times in minuscule letters as if written by a rat's paw. On the other pages, paragraphs seem to lift out of nowhere as, they, as if they arrived uninvited without context. One notebook is full of stories copied exactly from the Philadelphia Inquirer, except for the bylines, which all read James. I am James. I write the name James. The penmanship is the same. These are my notebooks. There's a box on the table. I open it. There's a stack of newspaper clippings inside, most from the Los Angeles Times. I pull, out, I pull the top one out. It's dated September 12, 2001. The headline reads, Terrorists Attack New York Pentagon. Fireballs and huge blossoms of smoke roll out of two buildings that look like silver pillars in a war without soldiers. Under the picture, there's a story written by James Ryan. There's that name again, James. I pull other clippings from the box. They are all written by James Ryan. Some go back 20 years. I am James Ryan. I write for newspapers. Do I still? If this is me, I have been to Prague and Budapest, Baghdad and Tehran, and many other places I don't remember. But these are documents and datelines. They don't lie. They don't appear mysteriously out of folders out of nowhere. They are real. There are pictures with stories. One is of a crowd in the snow. Stony faces peeking through a gray dusk dotted with ripped umbrellas, raised gloved fists, and a husky man with a full mustache and a bullhorn suspended above the crowd, transfixed in twilight, his eyes like dark fire. The caption identifies the man as Lech Valenza. I know that name, but I don't. Who is that name? I stare at that face, run my fingers over it, but he is meaningless to me. He is a stranger. Another picture shows bearded men in, a, in the desert, bandoliers crisscrossing their chests, their faces hard and thin, their white teeth flashing, all of them standing in the back of a pockmarked pickup truck. They seem a ragged army of bank robbers or castaway nomads in the desert. The caption says they are Mujahideen fighting American forces in a place called Anbar. I study their faces too, but nothing comes. How can it not come? My name is there in ink, James Ryan. James Ryan was an Anbar with wild bearded men. 
How does one forget that? So, as James holds on to the one mem- memory, the others uh, have have disappeared, and they're disappearing. And his wife and comes in and tries to pull him back, and uh, and other people try to remind him. And the third, oh, and and the and and try to remind him of of who he who he was. So, the the third voice, it, she doesn't have a name, and she's his nurse. And he only sees her every day as the lady in white, or the woman in white, because she needs him to complete her identity. Part of his memory is tied up in hers. And the the summer of the trip that he took with his father, uh, with Vera, uh, a stepsister was born, which he didn't know, who surfaces years later and comes to find him, or try to find him. And she is desperate because because both her parents are gone and then she finds this man and he only has one memory but she wants to scrape more and more of him so she can fulfill herself and so she has tracked him down and she looms over the uh, over the story uh, uh, desperate um, to know him but knowing she can't and this is how what she talks about what little she has gained about her identity and how she wants more and it's she's in his she's in his room in the nursing home uh, alone one night, and uh, and he's out. I was conceived in Virginia Beach. This is what Vera told me in her letter. She said she felt the moment it happened, the moon luring the tide, the distant waves. It's a pretty way to be made, really, a glorious conception. She wrote. The letter came to me quite unexpectedly, the way things do, like hurricanes, wars, and tsunamis that whirl in out of nowhere and make us rebuild. The letter was yellow and worn. I unfolded it, pressed my face against its pages, and breathed in Vera. But there was no scent of her, only old air and old paper and the cursive strokes of her desperate life. I was working as a nurse in Boston at the time. Strange fate that I should have chosen the profession my half-brother so needs. I had no husband and no children. I was dating a botanist. We took excursions into gardens and forests and graveyards. He could identify the mosses growing in tiny blooms on the tombstones of those who fought in the revolution. His name was Jacob Meyerson. We still see each other occasionally, but I have moved to Philadelphia to be near James, so not as often. Jacob doesn't know about James. I told him I left Boston for a more challenging job. He believed me. When Jacob visits, we walk the trails along the river, and with an envelope and tweezers, he collects vegetation. Like me, he is meticulous. We have intense conversations about pollination, rainforest, savannas, and how trees store carbon dioxide in deep, deep in their cores. He fears the world is slowly dying. I tell him about hearts and veins and minds. We go to movies, mostly documentaries in foreign languages, and walk along South Street, window shopping and listening to music rolling from doorways into the night. We eat pizza and drink cream soda along the water, and in the distance I see the gray hulks of old Navy ships and their big white numbers, their strung lights pretty as stars. We return to my place with a bottle of wine and have sex afterward. While Jacob sleeps, I trace the muscles of his body and I think of the shore and the way the waves crash against the pier and what it would have been like to have been born Chinese or Iranian. On Sunday morning, Jacob rises early, leaves a pressed flower near the coffee maker, and disappears out the door to the train that will carry him home to Boston. 
It's a nice arrangement, shy of fulfilling, but then again, not overbearing. I go jogging on those mornings. I am swift and lithe, always have been, even at this age when the knees need more coaxing than they once did. Through the peal of church bells, I run across Rittenhouse Square, past cut flowers, jars of apple butter and bundles of newspapers. I glide through colonial streets beyond men selling black felt triangle hats and Ben Franklin spectacles. I slip through history, breathing in oil and distant ocean, turning through the alleys the sun has yet to reach. I push on, sweat on my brow, my legs rhythmic as pistons. I run with no music in my ears except the sound of my footsteps against the waking city. I whisk past the gleam and smoke of diners to the quiet warehouses on the outskirts. I think of Vera and Kurt, alive, young and alive, falling in love. Spirits and ghosts denied me. I run until I weep. I let the tears fall. It feels good to let them fall. I am my own mystery, an incomplete daughter and unknown sister. After a few minutes, I turn, look back over the miles I have come, and begin the journey home. James was easy to find. I typed his name in Google. It was like a research project on a plant, a name, a being I never knew existed, but was related to growing out there in the world. There were 73 pages of hits on James. He was a journalist, but then suddenly he vanished. I called his old paper and, they, and tracked him to the, this nursing home convalescent center rehab facility or any other fucking thing that makes you think you feel uncomfortable about a place, but, that, but it only cares for you because you're losing your marbles, period. James looks just like my father, Kurt. Vera left me a picture of her and Kurt. It's black and white and was taken, I think, in one of those booths with sliding curtains that are so popular at catching moments that, you don't, that don't last beyond the beach on those summer holidays. James doesn't know me, but he is blood. The microscopic cells coursing through him are similar in patterns to mine. I think you need to know the person who is your blood. I never had that. And it's funny, ironic, I suppose, that the only person connected to me by molecular structures is a man who doesn't know who I am from one day to the next. I crave the memory he is losing. I love it when he talks about my parents during that summer at the beach. But James's stories don't go all the way to the end when things got nasty. And even hearing them, beautiful as they are, they are not flesh and bone. They cannot be caressed, whispered to. They cannot give a daughter or sister the touch, the warmth she needs. But they are all I have, words and words and words, stored and living in my mind. What is in me? So many intricacies I do not know. Am I bound for a void like James or confusion like my mother? Was she confused? Or did she just see things differently? There are too many spaces between the lines and perhaps something is hiding in of me, a deformity of spirit, an odd permutation of cell, a voice unheard. The sky outside James's window fills with strands of blowing ash, thousands, maybe millions of them, twirling and swimming like slender black fish out of a sea of smoke rising from a fire at the city's edge. A landfill? A refinery? The fire grows and mixes with the dusk, I watch. The smoke fattens, the ash shifts with the wind toward James's window, then away, then back again, then away. And that's her trying to find who she is. So the, these, the, this, the book alternates in those chapters and then the end, hopefully it, com hopefully it comes together. <laughs> so I'm so, um, happy if to uh, any questions on, uh, on anything or if not, thanks for coming. Sure, right. I guess you went to a 
classical journalism school uh, and learn journalism that way. Weren't you taught journalistic writing in such a way that it's almost a different world to get into a novel? It's a wrenching of your professional background to get into a novel. Am I wrong? No, it, it, no, you're not wrong. It's uh, it took it, in my. my in my first book, I stayed close to, in Promise Virgins, I stayed close to what I knew for exactly that reason. Um, we as journalists, you know, we're, we're, we, we can be imaginative and, and we, can, we can have space, but it's only so much. And, uh, and sometimes the truth and what we know about the real world and ourselves um, lay, lays beyond that, lie beyond that box. So I struggled with the first time to push push you know to push the envelope on it and uh, and this one I felt uh, as I, I was growing more toward doing that toward using the I think the, the journalistic helps you with uh, helps your eye helps your eye for description for for motion for rhythm for things and so I think applying that to the the the, uh, the fiction craft is, is a good tool, but you have to know when to get away with it, get away from it, because it can it can pull you down. It's uh, the, the, I think I think it's uh, the, the being a novelist and being a reporter go like this, but when they verge, they really have to verge, and uh, I think I struggle with that all the time. And one thing I must note here, um, my editor is here tonight, who makes sure that the. <laughs> when I'm working in the one world, but uh, she, Kari Howard, has done uh, immense things for me over the last decade, and uh, she's helped in my journalism to draw out um, the narrative and to make my writing better, so I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, so, well, thanks very much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.